Welcome, everybody. I am Jonathan Trone. Welcome to another episode of Shared Humanity. I am so excited today. We have Judith Hansen Lassiter. Now, if you come from the yoga world, you already know who she is. Chances are she's been teaching for, it's just about 50 years now of teaching plus practice before that. There is so much wisdom. Um, and for those that are not in the yoga world, there's just so much wisdom. She's written a whole ton of books. She's just contributed so much to the meaning of humanity. So I am really excited. Thank you, Judith, for being here. I'm so excited to see you. Well, Jonathan, thank you for inviting me. It was, it's just a fun way to hang out with you because I enjoyed so much when I came to your studio earlier in the year, which now, of course, we all look back nostalgically what we were in the same studio doing yoga together and lots of people and sitting close to each other and no one was wearing a mask. I mean, yes, in those days. I know, people so it's together. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words. I don't know how much wisdom. <laughs> so I, I, guarantee, say... <laughs> I Yeah, I guarantee a few bad jokes. I wanna say she has a new book, Yoga uh, Myths. And before we get into the yoga part of this book, Here's what really touched me. It's yoga myths, what you need to learn and unlearn for a safe and healthy yoga practice. And to me, this book isn't just about yoga. This is a book, I'm even crying as I say it because it's so true. It's about challenging and changing long-held beliefs. And it's hard for people to change their beliefs. Um, and I'm wondering if, that, if you feel any of that. Well, let, let me quote Buddha. I think that the jury will accept Buddha as an expert witness. Buddha said that, he said, do not seek enlightenment merely, I can't believe that word is translated, merely cease to cherish beliefs. So he doesn't say don't have beliefs because human beings cannot live without belief. We get in bed at night and we have the belief that whoever built the roof was did a good job it's not going to fall on us in the night. We have the belief the sun's going to come up. We have, we have beliefs a mile a minute every second. He didn't say don't have beliefs. He said don't cherish them. You know, I don't know if you liked the, the whole uh, Hobbit series and, and that, those wonderful books, but there's a character in there named Gollum, which a lot of people know. And Gollum used to take out the magic ring and just like call it my precious and hold it and, and, and stroke it. And we all do that with our beliefs. And so what I think that the, the, the deep part of yoga, one of the deepest parts of yoga is creating an awareness that what I'm saying now is reflecting a belief I have. So what I do in the book is how I try to actually live my life. And the, and the longer I practice and teach, the more what I think about, the more what I say, the more what I do, and the more what I practice come more close, come more closely together. But what I try to do in the book is not tell, I'm not telling anyone you're wrong. All I'm saying is, this is what I, why I like Tadasana done this way. This is why, try it for yourself. Taste the spinach and then choose what works best for you. And that's the way I conduct my classes. I don't try to impose the asana on anyone. I try to expose it. Well, for me, and I've had, even before this came out, I've had this experience both in, in yoga class uh, as a teacher and in the coaching work that I do where, where my belief about a certain either pose or experience changes. And then I have to share this with them and have to say, you know, I think I may have told you something that was wrong or that I no longer believe anymore. And, and it's really humbling. I feel it in my body. Like, can I say this? What, what, I don't even, sometimes I can't even get the words out, but I have to say, I have to share you something new and maybe what I told you before is wrong. Um, it's a hard thing for me, for me to, to do. And I'm wondering if you had to go through that as you discovered some of these things. So Jonathan, how human of you. That is one of my favorite mantras of daily living. How human of me to feel that way. It's just a human thing. So what I find is that what I try to do is not make myself a prisoner of my words. Someone once said to me, 
make sure all your words are sweet because you never know when you might have to eat them. <laughs> so uh, that's why I don't say it's wrong. This is what I like right now. This is what I like, and this is what I'd like you to try right now. And, you know, go in there and say, let's try something new. I've been working on this and see how it goes. Because one of the problems with many teacher training programs, I believe, the challenges, is that we teach our teachers, this is the right way to do triangle pose, this is the wrong way. But I think, and people say to me, and when I teach as they do to you, most certainly, am I doing this right? Mm. And I always stop them, stop the class, take it as a learning moment, which says, that's not, that's not, the, that's not the question. The question is, what effect does it, have it, does it have in my body, mind, and soul if I do it this way? And what effect does it have if I do it that way? That we should think more about the residue of the asana. What residue is the asana or the pranayama or the meditation or the food or the dialogue or the relationship? in our lives. What residue is that leaving? Because we're choosing the residue when we choose the action. Don't plant an apple tree and get mad you don't have a peach. So yeah. we're, we're planting and creating and forming the pose to get a certain effect. And that's the attitude of the book. It's saying if you do it this way, this doesn't follow my understanding of anatomical and kinesial logical principles, you'll get this effect. If you try it another way, this is what I'm predicting you'll get. And, and I like how then you brought, you did bring it off the mat. It's not just about triangle pose or the anatomy of the body, but it's about the anatomy of your life. How do you show up in your conversations? How do you show up of all of this? And, and what is the reflection you get afterwards? After you do an action, whether it's in a pose or in life, what happens? What do you get what do you back? Do? What do you get back? What karma? You know, what some scars are you creating? What, what tendencies are you creating in your nervous system? What results are you going to get? And I think a lot of people misunderstand karma. They say, oh, that's just his karma. Karma is not the same thing as fate. So tell, karma, tell. Is, karma is the result of your action. And if you look in science and physics, every action has a reaction. I mean, that's the level of the world where we live. And so when we choose a certain way to do a pose, when we choose a way to talk to ourselves, when we choose a way to speak with others, when we choose where, where to donate our money or our time, we're creating a result. And what we need to do, what I believe that any spiritual practice teaches us to do, is to pay attention to the results of our actions. Again, to quote Buddha, the only thing a man, I'm going to put woman in there too, the only thing a man slash woman slash other gets in life is what is, the only thing we own is our actions because that's the only thing that makes the difference and words are a form of action. So if yeah, that's, our that, yoga- that's important. Pause on that. Words are a form of action. Yes. We think there are words and there are actions. Yeah, your words are actions. Because think about when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary. The beginning of the Declaration of Independence was, and I know there's, there's a lot of problems with the founders of the, especially now we're becoming so much more aware of them, but the words themselves caused a, a small, tiny country to go to war against the largest, most powerful country in the world. And it is beautifully written, stating the reasons. And the right word at the right time can change your life. Mm -hmm. And I have, there's two words that you probably said that changed your life, which was, I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes? Yes, most definitely. That changed the entire course of your life. Yes. And then a little so, bit after that. <laughs> everything. So, so words are act, a form of speech is a form of action. It changes you. It changes you. For example, if you said to me, um, I don't like doing the pose that way. 
and I said to you, do it that way anyway, it's the right way to do it. Or the pose hurts me, this hurts me. Well, just keep practicing and do it that way anyway. Or I said, oh, let's, uh, let's explore that a little bit and see what, if we can find a way of doing it that you enjoy. Mm, that's so beautiful. Well, then you feel heard and seen. Yeah, that's not, it's, it's not often the way we're taught, either in yoga or outside of yoga. It's, this is what I'm telling you to do. Please do as I know, so therefore follow. Um, you Listen, bring a lot of humanity into it. Yes, I can tell you a lot of ways to have an argument with your intimates. One, one way to have an argument is to say, it's too hot in here. <laughs> oh, it's too cold in here. You're always going to get an argument. No, it's not. Yes, it is. All right. But if you say to them, it's hotter in here than I would like, they can't say, no, it isn't. Because you're reflecting from your own experience. Yeah. Here's some other ways to have an argument. One way is to say, you always. That nothing good happens after that. If you tell your intimate people you live with, you always. That's a guaranteed argument. Or you never. Never, don't say that. Unless you want an argument. Am I right? So what, so what are some words we can, well, what are the words that, that always turn that around? Okay, so if you say, you always slam the door when you come in. Well, first of all, number one, pick your moment. Pick a moment when you feel connected and say, you know, we've talked about it a lot. And I know you know, you know this, but oftentimes when you come home, you close the door in a way that's hard for me to hear. And I'm so eager to see you. And then there's this noise that I experience is loud. So I'm wondering if we could work out a strategy where you might be willing to close the door in a different way. You're probably so excited to get home, you're not thinking about it and you open the door and walk in. But then I hear it and it, 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 it always makes me jump. Are you willing to talk about it for five minutes, see if we can work it out? Yeah, you know, so I wanna read a quote from your book because it, it, this I think leads into it. Okay. It, it, really, it really touched me. When we see our students or ourselves with soft eyes, we see through the lens of truth and compassion. And of course, I think it's beyond Stu. When I took that, I, I kind of, well, forget students, right? This is life. Sure. And I think that's what you're, you're talking about, the, the lens of, of the soft eyes, so that we can have the lens of compassion. Yes, and, 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 and hearing people more with your heart instead of just your ears. If someone says to you, you always forget my birthday. If I heard, if you said that to me and I heard that with my heart, I would think, oh, Jonathan is hurt because he wants so much to, to be celebrated on his birthday. It means a lot to him. Or I could just say, no, I don't. Don't you remember five years ago when I didn't forget it? That doesn't do anything. That doesn't solve the problem. So if I hear you with my heart, I hear your, your disappointment. And so we have to also check in with ourselves. Am I hearing right now with my ears or am I hearing with my heart? And we need to ourselves discern the difference. Yes, because in especially as teachers, because teaching is, we must be exquisite communicators because that's our real tool. If we, we can practice beautifully and have wonderful experiences in our own body, mind, and soul, but if we can't communicate them to the student, it, it, we can't, it's very difficult to teach. Yeah. And, so, and so what we have to remember as teachers, I think, is that it's never what we say, it's always what the student hears. And I'd like to tell you a story about that, if I may. Yes. So years ago, I had just started teaching the restorative trainings, I think 2001, right before 9-11. It was perfect timing. And anyway, I think it was the next year, I went off to another state 
to teach a workshop in restorative yoga, which was a new thing then. You had to tell people what it was. So I was speaking in that class and I just mentioned in what I believed, here's beliefs again, was the most general way, something about the ethics and students, between students and teachers, just a very, I don't remember the statement. This was, you know, 18 years ago, but it was something very general. And then a woman in the, sitting in the middle of the class started to get upset and she started to cry. And she raised her hand and she said, I can't believe you're saying those things about my guru, unquote. Well, I was dumbfounded. I didn't even know she had a guru. I had no idea who a guru was. I had never mentioned other teachers from the mat. I'm like, so I, a part of me wanted to say, I didn't say, did you guys hear me say, you know, defend, defend, defend. But I decided, oh yeah, okay, this new thing, nonviolent communication. Um, uh, uh, what might she be feeling? Uh, so as if you were she, so you want us all to know how much you respect your guru and you want everyone to respect your guru too. And she kind of brightened up. She said, yes. So I said a similar sentence two or three times and then she was cool. And then we could go back to the course. And I'm like, whoa, because my tendency would have been to defend and explain and educate, which we fall into that trap all the time in our relationships. So so then after class, a couple, several people came up and they said, oh my God, that was so tense. You did, how did you do that? You know, that was so great. So it kind of went on and she integrated back into the class. We had the class, we went on. And the last day she came up to me and she said, this was the best workshop I've ever taken. May I give you a hug? And I said, sure. I never initiate hugs, but if the student initiates the hug, then I, I say, okay. Cause I feel better about that boundary. So it's, I, not me, it's not me crossing their boundary. They want to cross my boundary. Right. And you and, that's, and I welcome that. Or I don't, but 99% of the time I do. So anyway, I like that dynamic. So, and then she said this to me. And thank you for apologizing about what you said about my guru. <laughs> and again, that urge to educate. I didn't apologize, you know. And I, so I just looked at her and smiled and I said, you're welcome but I never knew who it was or anything. Wow. But so I just saw it from her point of view. different things. Exactly. It's never about what we say. Certainly in the teaching situation, really underline, underline that in our relationships. It's not about what we say. It's what the, about what the other person hears. So if we can put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what they might be hearing, we can be better communicators. Yes. Isn't I want to ask you, because I know you also, you, you wrote a book on this subject. You wrote a book on nonviolent communication. Yeah. So how long did it take you to, to learn about it, but then practice it so that you're in that situation and the right words can come off of your tongue? What kind of process was that? Well, it's, I started really slowly. It took several years, a number of years. It's like learning a foreign language. But the reason I like it, and I talk about this in my book, What We Say Matters, is that the very first step is to go inside and get connected with you, which is what my life is about. Yeah. On the mat, on the cushion, in my relationships, in my writing, with my children. First, in every human contact, if you feel that you get triggered, what I do, what I've learned to do, it's a reflex now. It doesn't take me very long, but I've done it for years. Yeah. I notice that I'm triggered. And you know, teachers, as teachers, I'm, I'm wondering, has, has there been a time or more than one time where you got triggered in a yoga class by one of your students? Certainly happened to me over almost yes. 50 years. <laughs> yeah, right. No doubt. Right. And then I'm guessing, because I know you a little bit now, the very next thought that comes is you're berating yourself for that. I shouldn't be upset. I should not let this bother me. I should be different. Maybe you don't do that. I no, I do. I'm like, yeah, well, first there's a shock, right? So, so you have to get past the shock and then it's, it's okay. How do we do this kindly and, and compassionately? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a flash that goes on there because you, you don't want to be triggered in the middle of class either, but of course it, it happens. 
And there's some teachers that seem triggered the whole class. His teachers were supposed to be above it. Exactly. I'm supposed to be better than that, right? So I'm a yoga teacher. So the first thing you do is to say, well, I say, how human of me. Of course I feel irritated. Mm. That's just the way human beings are. And I could, it's empathy, giving myself empathy, understanding that I reacted. I got stimulated and I reacted. How human of me? What else is new? But the question is not, see, to me, an integrated person is not a person who never gets triggered. An integrated person who has this self-awareness to pause and choose their reaction to it. And that's what empathy does. It get that self-empathy, how human of me to be irritated right now. And then I can do it that like pause. that. That pause is the most important part. Pause. And then you can say, well, I hear you're upset. You're ir- I, it, it seems to me that you're a little bit irritated about that. I get it. Let's try something different or whatever strategy you choose. But acknowledging the other person's, the legitimacy of their feelings and opinion without agreeing with them because this is what empathy is empathy is understanding independent of agreement Hmm. so i can have empathy for someone on the other side of the political line and i completely what i what i find sometimes is so one person let's say i will have empathy for another person but then there's a part of me that wants them, even without agreeing, to have empathy, understanding for me, but that might not be there. So how do we reconcile the, the one-way empathy when there is a part of us that wants two-way empathy? What you have to do, great question, by the way. What, the only thing that I have found that works is to give myself empathy first or get somebody I know and trust to give it to me in, in person and in, you know, over the phone or something is I give it to myself, self-empathy. Um, yes, of course, you know, I, you know, I really wanted, my need for respect was not met. I really wanted to be met and understood and heard in a different way when I said that, uh, or I, I realized that I said something in a way that stimulated Jonathan or hurt his feelings. And I'm so sad about that because I, that was not my intention. Of course, I'm just human. L- let me forgive myself. And then when I feel full, I know it. You know how I know? Because spontaneously arising is curiosity about what was going on with you. Until I have that spontaneous arising of curiosity, I'm not full enough yet to speak. Mm -hmm. I have to give myself empathy. And I, let me tell you, I have used empathy in situations that have been stunning in what I got back. And I started practicing when I called helplines. You know, tell me you about know helplines, like some appliance thing or something going on in your house or you're, okay. calling, okay. or you're calling Apple or you're, you know. And I say things like, I'm... I can imagine it from the other person's point of view. And I say, I can, I'm really sort of glad that I'm not you right now because it's Monday morning and I can imagine all these people, (laughs) grumpy people like me are calling you and almost blaming you for what's going on. I said, so if you, or or I'll say something like, if you hear a little impatience in my voice, it's because I am impatient, but I'm not impatient with you. I'm grateful for your help. I'm impatient with the situation that my printer hasn't worked all weekend and I'm behind on my project. So please understand that. And they go, oh my God, you're the nicest person I've talked to all day. <laughs> because is, I mean, isn't that ahimsa? Isn't it the first yama, the first precept, if you will? Is In ahimsa stop, for everyone, non, non-violence. Non-violence, ahimsa, non-harming. But first it has to start at home. It has to start with our own self. Mm, yes. And I really use it in airports. Well, I used to use it in airports. I like to say one of my best spiritual training centers was the Chicago O'Hare Airport. (laughs) (laughs) It was my ashram because so many times you fly from San Francisco where I am through Chicago to other places. It's one of the hubs on United. And it's, you know, got this weather. In the summer, it's got lightning and 
you know, storms. And in the winter, of course, the ice and the, and so you're always getting delayed or you get there in time, but then the, the crew didn't get there because the storm came in after, you know, and so many times, and I watch people and I watch myself get upset because I'm going to be an hour late. And then I remember that it took people a year to get from St. Louis to California on a Calistoga wagon. And I'm like, gee, I'm going to get to ride on this airplane an hour after I thought, but I'm going to have dinner and watch a movie. And my hair's not even going to get messed up. <laughs> so I give myself empathy and then I'm able to give it to the people around me. And I, I've just had so many instances where it's completely changed the situation. So take care of yourself first. Put on your own oxygen mask and then help someone else who's traveling on planet earth with you. Yeah. So I, I have another question and it does come, come from your book, but I think it, it lends to all this. Um, so I have highlights already everywhere. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I'm humbled. Um, and this again, it's about yoga, but it's beyond yoga. Practice our yoga asana with intelligent and kind persistence as we uncover our own true selves. What is your definition of true self? All right. Sit up. Now, I want you to take your intelligence to the exact center of your brain. You know, like... Mm -hmm. The nexus. Got it. Right about. All right. So go to the center of your brain. Drop your eyes. Now, did you become aware more of not only your surroundings, but of your body, of your breath? Definitely the body and breath. Yeah. In fact, everything else kind of vanished away. Yeah. So... Who is having that experience? Yourself. Your deepest self. So there's a wonderful expression that consciousness sleeps in the stone. It dreams in the plant. It awakens in the animal. And it recognizes itself in the human. Hmm. So it's that stepping back. It's that part of me that knows. So there's a silence there. There's an awareness there that we forget. So all spiritual practice is about remembering and unlearning like the book says. Mm. So I like to say that practice is like the wonderful Jewish mother saying, don't forget your galoshes, it's going to rain. You know, the practice is reminding us of what we've just forgotten, which is that innate goodness, that innate silence, that innate intelligence and compassion. So how do we, so I can just do that. You go, go there and, and I feel it. Yes. Took you can do that all day long whenever you get how do, But how do we, how do we take that out into communication? Because when I'm there, I can barely speak because I, I am, that's it. That's true self. I am there. How do we, how do we get that part of us to engage outwardly? All right. So what I think you do is you take, you take, you do two things. The things that work for me, I don't know what you should do. The things that work for me, it's like if I'm gonna be on the phone with a difficult conversation, not this one, <laughs> I, you know, I, we've all had these difficult conversations, right? I write down my intention. I take an intention first and I write it down and I stick it on my computer or I stick it on my desk right where I am. And when I start to feel triggered, I look back at that intention. And I realize, well, I'll give you a perfect example. I was having a phone call with two other people and one of them said something 
and I became triggered. They didn't trigger me. I don't give them that power. On some level, I chose it. It was like that fast, but I got so triggered. And I just went, I, I remembered, you know, at that time, 40 years of practice or whatever it was, all came together in that one moment. And I had enough remembering. It was like the image I had, have you ever been like in an old abandoned house or a room somewhere where there's like a, this was my image, like a, a single 15 watt light bulb hanging down all covered with dust in the center of the room. So that it was barely, I, my mind went black, blank, except there was this light bulb in the center, like I fingernails holding on to that awareness. And I said this, right now I am really triggered. And I know if I continued, I would say things that I would regret. What I would like to do is hang up. I'm gonna go walk around the block. I'm gonna come back in about 10 minutes and I will call you back, I promise, because I want to continue this conversation when I'm not triggered. Mm. Will you support me in that? Yes. So then I, I did it, I came back, but I just, I mean, it was like, it was like the tiniest beam of light. Like that's all I had. I lost everything else. And I just went, oh, well, that only took 40 years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then after the call, one of the people called me up and said, how did you do that? I said, you got 40 years? <laughs> yeah, right. But see, isn't that why we practice, Jonathan? Because in my small way, that made the world a better place in that moment. Yeah. I didn't go to violence. It took every bit of, of courage and focus that I had, though. I mean, I'm, I was practically seeing red spots, which I've actually done before. Have you ever actually been so angry you saw red? Yes. It's not a, it's not a metaphor, is it? And it's you not You actually fun. see red spots. <laughs> yeah, I was practically there. So 40 years of practice. Life is a practice. Life is a practice. Every day you get to yeah, practice. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the more I work with uh, my practice and nonviolent communication and the easier it gets, but you know, we are humans and that's the most wonderful thing about us. If that means we make mistakes. And we keep forgetting and, and we say things that hurt people when we don't mean it. Yeah. So, so I want to ask, because people are, are consumed with the idea of success as well. Mm -hmm. And people who, who know you think of you, I don't know, know you know you, but people who've heard of this, the, the, this person, Judith Hanson Lassiter, um, right? She's a successful yoga teacher, lots of books, all this stuff. So what's, what's behind the success part of Judith? Well, you know, thank you. Um, so let me tell you a little bit of a story to help answer this. I was a graduate student at the University of Texas in Austin one reason I love Austin, it has so many memories for me. And I'd been a teaching assistant and it hadn't been as satisfying as I hoped it would be because I always wanted to teach. I thought I was gonna be a government professor, teach government, political science. So I went over to the drag. You, if you live in Austin, you know the drag. It's the street, for those of you who don't, right on one side of the university where all the coffee, coffee stores and takeouts and you know bookstores, you know the drag. Jonathan, you know the drag, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and every, every college place has a drag, so. Yeah, every, yeah it's the, we call it the drag. So I went over to the drag and I was, I was thinking about, I needed a new job for the fall. And I, I walked by the, it was a student YWCA, YMCA. And I'd never been in that building. And I walked by that building and it was, we were talking before, the recording about intuition, I literally felt this force in my gut, 
like pulling me. And I said, it's the best right-hand turn I ever, it's one of the, mo the most important right-hand turn of my life. It pulled me in there and I walked right up to the desk and I said, I'm a graduate student and I'm looking for a part-time job in the fall. And everyone just turned and looked at me. They said, five minutes ago, we got out of a meeting. How did you know this? We decided to hire a program associate part-time for the fall. And they had a yoga program there, had just started a couple months before that. So I could take it free. So- And had you already been practicing that? No. No yoga no. then? I had just become a vegetarian. I don't know why, I just decided one day to be a vegetarian in the middle of, you know, filet mignon, Texas. Uh, and <laughs> I, so I started taking it because I had a little arthritis and I wanted to do dancing again. And I absolutely fell in love with it. From the very first class, I got up the next day, Jonathan, and did what I remembered. That was it. That was it for me. My life completely changed. And 10 months later, I took over a yoga teacher training program, uh, not, not teacher training, but te uh, teaching program of 200 students. It was like the only yoga in Austin. It was really hot. It was the Beatles and the Maharaji and you know, Maharaji and, you know, Transcendental Meditation and sitar was in rock music and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I decided to go to physical therapy school and do the PhD in East West psychology and all of that. So because this was what I loved. And in the, in the, in the sense of following your bliss, no, there really wasn't anything like an independent yoga teacher who wasn't teaching outside of an ashram. But all I knew was this was my, I didn't even know the word, but this was my Dharma. This was what I was put on earth to do. And that's why I went back to, in, went to school again and did physical therapy training and the East-West psychology PhD to learn about the sutras and the deeper aspects of yoga, psychology and philosophy. So the point is, I never set out to be successful. In fact, one of the reasons I chose physical therapy school was because I wanted to really learn deeply about the body. I figured if I was telling you what to do with yours, I better know what I was doing. But second of all, I always thought it was a fallback. Like if I can't make a living teaching yoga, then I can be a physical therapist, right? So it was a fallback. So I never had the idea, I'm going to be a successful yoga teacher. My idea was, do, I was doing what I loved with all my heart and all my mind. But you, you get 100 people in the room online, you get you know 200 people in a room, what? What, what's different about you? I don't know if it's different about me. I think it's partly the times, but let me just back up for a second. I've had young teachers come to me and say, how do I get to be a famous yoga teacher? And I'm like, I go, I get triggered. Like, how do I get to be famous? Or how do I get to be successful? And here's what I truly, truly have learned, Jonathan. First of all, the hardest yoga class to teach in the world is someone else's. You know, I walk in to substitute a class and people are like, mm, you're not our teacher. <laughs> That's happened to me. It's probably happened to you, right? <laughs> because each of us brings exactly their own true self. And what I think, I learned this lesson so fast. I tried to be, when I started teaching, my teachers moved away and my teacher said, here, take the, over the classes. You're like, you know, she didn't use these words, but you're our senior student. You know, she said, and would you like? And I said, yes. And then I went in there the first day and I sat down on the mat, this very mat that's hanging there against the wall behind me. And I was terrified. There were all these people lying there because people used to come to yoga and lie down first. It was kind of nice. <laughs> and I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh my God, what am I doing? So I thought, I'm panicked. Like, can I sneak out? What was I thinking? I don't know what to say for a whole hour. So I just closed my eyes, took some deep breaths. And then by the grace of divinity, I felt as strongly as I feel you. She was standing behind me and her teacher behind her. And in my mind's eye, all the way back into infinity, there was this line. And I almost burst out laughing. And I realized it's not about me. 
Mm -hmm. I'm just the bucket handing the water. And I learned in that very first class through the grace of God that what I teach comes through me, not from me. Mm. And the more I do my own practice and get out of the way and trust myself to, to let go and be the bucket, the more connected I feel with myself, with my students, the happier I am, the more fun I have. I still have fun teaching. And I don't know if that answered your question. Well, yeah, so here's- I think that's so, what people so want. They want so, to come and be with you, Jonathan. They want to come and be with you. You are the bucket they want. No, I, I, I get that. So here, here's what I want to know. So how much time, what, you, you started 10 months later, you started teaching. When, when was it with that you took over your teacher's class? In 10 months In ten, after so, I started. So here's okay. what, what I want to know, because it took me years to figure out that, that it was just all the stuff and, and the words were bare, weren't even mine and it just went through me. But yeah. you figured that out in 10 months. So, no, I figured that out when I sat down on the mat before I taught my first class. That came to me. That amazes me that that can happen. That that's what I want to know. Like like uh, you it know, it gives me chills right now. Yeah, fifty almost fifty years later, it just chills down my arms. I know it was nothing that I did. That's amazing. It was a gift, and I was never afraid after that. And the more I became myself on every level, the bigger the classes got. And I, I just want to back up and say that I don't think that having a lot of students is the sign of success as a yoga teacher. What does success mean to you? It means you teach with integrity. You stand on the mat in your own light and you teach with integrity the truths and the understanding and the awarenesses that you have learned and that you know. Because everything that I say, and forgive me, everything that you say, as beautifully as it may come from you, which I'm sure it does, you're a very sensitive teacher. Don't worry, I, 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 I is not all the time. <laughs> is not new. Yes, yeah. And so, when we say it from the depths of our integrity, our, we teach from our own juicy experience, people feel it. And they start saying, this is what, when I feel like I'm a success, quote unquote. It used to be that people would say, that was a great class. Once in a while it happened, they would say that. But now people will say, you changed my life. And then I am so humbled and grateful that I was able to be the bucket. That, you know, as one of my longtime students said, she wrote the foreword to a book I wrote called A Year of Living Your Yoga, which is a little practice and saying for every day of the year. And she said, you teach the way I learn. And you can't do that for everybody. And there are very successful, you know, what we would call outwardly successful teachers who can draw a lot of people. But if you look at the lives of some of those people, you know, they have, they have a lot of problems. We all have problems. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you said something really important in, in the middle there. And it's getting out of your own way. It's the art of getting out of your own way, which is certainly true when you're teaching yoga. It's been going on for thousands of years and the words just get transmitted through you and your body. And it's also true for everywhere we else we show up in life, usually, occasionally someone else is in our way, but I think usually it's us who are in our own way. And if we can just step out of our own way, then the beauty is already there for us to see. We're just the ones blocking it. Um, Exactly. Exactly. I call it, you know, when you go into a yoga class and you say something and you kind of get those chills over the back of your head and I do, or down my arms, mm -hmm. I, I call it plugging into the cosmic grid. And I say, somebody, whoa, where did that come from? Write that down. 
remember that. So I'll give you a perfect example of that. This came to me the other day when I was doing another one of these lovely interviews. I just want to read it to you. I wrote it down because I can't, I don't exactly remember it because it came, you know what I'm saying? I said, listen to this. I think you'll like it. Eventually, the integrity of the asana becomes vibrant without effort. It becomes clear without struggle, and thus it becomes a seat of refuge. Then we experience a quietness that spontaneously arises. That's beautiful. I know. I'm and, like, where did that come from? And, and I, I know I always go back to this, but then it's, it's how do you take it from yoga to life? And if you substitute the word life, not that I want to change your words, but if you just substituted life and in, in, in in, in where asana is, like that's, that's Eventually life right? becomes vibrant without effort, becomes clear without struggle, and thus your life itself is a refuge. Because refuge is not a location, Jonathan. It's, it's here. An intention. It's an intention. It's what you choose. Yes. Yeah. It's not somewhere else because when you go, you can go to the fanciest and there's one of them not far from here, a retreat center down the peninsula built with, you know, internet money, like creme de la creme, everything is perfect. The props all match, gorgeous wood, you know, Japanese architecture in the woods, perfect food, blah, blah, blah. But the problem if I go there is I take me with me. It's still the same I hear you. If you look at my, and, and, and one of the talks that I did, I talk about that. I went from I went from Boston to to Denmark to Spain to LA, and and all of a sudden, that voice was in all these places. Now I thought, I thought the next destination was where life would unfold, and I'd finally find the joy. But the only thing that showed up was me. And it was not a refuge at that time, like it is now. Yeah. And yeah, you have, you have to change this to become that refuge. And, and we see that in yoga where people think, if I can just get handstand, if I can just get these poses, like, and they're striving to get the poses and I've done it and it was fun. And it was, you know, where I was at the time. But I think a big switch happened for me too when I went into labor with the first of my three children. I thought, oh, this is just an asana. Mm. Breathe with it. That everything's an asana, you know? Every, oh, <laughs> everything's an asana. Oh, I love that. No, there, is no, that there is nowhere that is not your yoga mat. That's right. That's right. Hmm. And these, these expressions help me. Everyone is Buddha. Now, did Buddha really live? I don't know. Did, did, I have a funny cartoon that says, it's Buddha sitting there in meditation. And he says, underneath, I never really said that. Because people say Buddha said this and Buddha said that. But uh, I don't know if Buddha lived, but I'm going to use the idea that he did in this way. I tell myself everyone is Buddha or no one is. Yeah. Because if, everyone is the inner self, has, is the inner divinity. And if or we no one treat is. Treat ourselves that way and treat others that way. Always. Then it changes. Everyone you meet is Buddha in disguise. Now, I don't care if that's a fact. I like what I say and do when I believe that. I'm picking up that belief like a hammer. You know, like if I want to hang a picture in my office, usually I take off my clog and try to, but sometimes I go all the way down two stories and I get the really good hammer and I use the right tool and I, you know, hang the picture hanger and then I hang the picture but I don't carry the hammer with me for the rest of my life. I put it down. So beliefs are things that you can use. And that's, that's a belief that makes my life better. This person standing in front, this person driving in front of me, going just slow enough so that I can't pass them. You know, this is Buddha. Yeah. And, and there's a great book. Other, every, every person you come into, that, that help desk that you were talking about, yeah, that's Buddha. That's You're talking Buddha. Buddha. And if you, if, and the hardest person, of course, to believe is Buddha is yourself. So but either everyone is Buddha or no one is. Hmm. That's a powerful one. Cause we like to think the people that agree with us are Buddha, but all those other people on the other side, well, they can't be Buddha. Mm -hmm. 
So sometimes when I'm teaching a course for teachers, I have them write this out. Think of a disagreement that you have with someone close to you. Like, let's say your mom is getting needs, you think she needs to go and get, you know, full-time care now, and your brother disagrees with you. Or something like that, you know, that's a long time. And write out the situation as if you were he, from his point of view. Mm. Oh, and they moan and groan. Because they think I mean I want them to agree with him, you know? I want them to write it from his perspective. Right. We always want to, want to force the other people to look at our perspective. But even if we don't agree with it, can we, for a moment, observe that perspective, That's write empathy. that perspective? Yeah. So empathy independent of agreement. Yes. And I think empathy for yourself is empathy independent of judgment. Oh, interesting. No judgment. Mm. It doesn't mean we're not accountable for our actions. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about that voice, that part of us, because it's a part of us, that voice. That was a stupid thing to say. You know, <laughs> you didn't really do a good class today. You know, that, I didn't really like the way you dealt with that woman. I didn't like what you said to Jonathan today. You're bad. You don't do, you're not good. You know that one? I know it. You know it. So what I want to do with my practice with capital P slash life is to, that voice is a wounded part of me. I want to invite that voice to come and sit right next to me mm. and to be integrated into who I am. My grandmother used to have a pillow, embroidered pillow on her couch that said, if you don't have anything nice to say about anybody, come sit by me. <laughs> so, it's kind of true. So I want no longer to push any part of me away. It's, and I'm really willing now not to push away the parts I don't like, but to have compassion and empathy for them and, and, and weave them into the fabric of who I am. I don't want to follow them, but I want to integrate the anger, the hurt, you know, the rage, the, you know, whatever in, in, into me. Do you and see that as a journey that has a completion? Like, will all that anger at one point in this lifetime be wrapped up? Or is this just a journey at some point our life is over and there's still the anger and whatever, whatever's there? I'll say, I'll tell you what Buddha said when asked that kind of question, none of your business. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't have any way of knowing that. And that's not what I'm about. I'm about right now. Can I invite that angry part to come, that hurt part to come in and sit next to me into the tent and uh, give it the empathy and love that it really wants. I love because, that. You know what? I think, I, I think maybe we should, talk uh say this and then maybe we could just talk a little bit about the book is that the most important job of a yoga teacher is to reflect back the inherent goodness and the inner wisdom of a student hmm. and the only way we can do that the only way we can empower them to become freer and more open and more themselves is to find it in ourselves first. Yeah. And that this is a, this is really a calling, this teaching of yoga. It is a deep privilege. It's not a right. It's a sacred act to teach. It's a sacred act to physically touch someone else in a pose. It is a gift beyond gratitude that we have this practice in all its deepest senses, as well as asana, pranayama, all of it. And so that our job is to become the yoga. Yeah. Wow. And then the world changes. We change, the world changes. So, so let's go back to the book for, for a minute. So why, You've written a lot of books. Why, why this book? Why now? That's my 10th book. 
I know. I like writing books. Um, because I have traveled and taught yoga now on six continents and in virtually every state of the union. And I have seen a lot of, heard a lot of instructions and seen a lot of practices that in my experience are not healthy in the long term. And I wanted to offer what I call some yoga myths. And like one chapter is called, it's for everybody actually, one chapter is called Why You Don't Need Neck Rolls But You Do Need Blankets and Shoulder Stand. It's about the neck. And you're, you know, there's, I think that there's a chapter called now, can't, can't remember exactly, but your knees are smarter than you. <laughs> like it's really about trusting the innate structure and function of the body as an incredibly beautiful, wise entity that carries our precious soul. Mm. And to listen more and tell less. And, and to trust and wanna, ourselves more. I, I want to reiterate for people, it is about yoga and it's not about yoga. It really, it really is the meat of the body, right? The meat and bones of the body. And we all, we all have that. So yeah, how can we listen to it? How can we connect with it more? It's really a powerful book. Thank you. I had a great deal of fun writing it. I wrote that book in four months. In four months, I have to do a book writing course for us now. I write a book in four months, right? I'll tell you how to write a book. Outline. This is what I learned when I wrote my first book. Meticulous outline. And then, you know, the analogy I make about writing books is like being a painter. It's, you know, everyone wants to just do the paint, like a little kid, like put the paint on the wall. But a really good painters come in, they empty the room, they cover the furniture, they tape the windows, they tape, they caulk, they repair, they sand it down, they wash, they clean, they get the canvas ready, quote unquote. The last thing they do is paint. Yeah. So it's like so, anything. How do we show up and prepare for it? Yeah. What do we do before we're on the yoga mat? Yes. What do yeah. we do before we pick up the phone and have the phone call? Get to that true self. Yeah, and one of the things I like about yoga myths, uh, actually tomorrow is the launch day. Um, and you can still, uh, you know, you can get it, uh, order it still. But uh, one of the things I like about it is I, every chapter begins with a story. Yes. Did you like that? I did. I noticed it. I like, well, the whole thing begins with a story. The book begins with a story. And then there are yeah. stories all, all along the way, which, so you can connect to humanity, which is what this is about. It's what is life what is hope, about. Which is, I hope, what we did. Yes. Listen, I so enjoy talking to you, but I always enjoy talking to you. I know. Um, do you, I know we spoke before. Now, I don't know. What you read before, was that the poem you were going to read or is there another poem? Another one. So I want to hear, we're going to close now. Well, so before we close, um, Yoga Myths, you can buy it on Amazon and I'm sure all the other places that, that, that you can get a book. Sure. Um, for, for those that are connected to us in Yoga Tree, um, Judith is going to be doing a workshop with us in embodied practice, finding your center in every asana. That's going to be in November and we'll share more details about that. But stay it's tuned. online. Yoga Tree. Yes, it's going to be online on Zoom. We'll all connect with that. So any, wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to get to that. And now, gonna, can I just say yeah. something about oh, yeah. that? Is that this is a new course that I've never taught before with some new ideas about doing what you brought up several times of like closing the gap between how I live and how I practice. Hmm. through where we take our attention in asana. There will be some talking, but then there's going to be live asana. And I'll be teaching my daughter and she'll be doing it. It's, it's going to be, I'm I so excited. It's, it's going to be it's great. Be, I'm truly excited. It'll be on so, your website probably soon. Yes, we'll have it up there. Well, by the time this is up, it'll be on the website. So everything will be there together. Um, and I want to close. Uh, Judith is also a poet. So... Let's, let's close with a poem. Okay. So I, I've written about 100 poems. I uh, was afraid for a long time to read them. 
And then one day I just decided I was going to read them and some people would like them maybe. And I love reading them. So thank you for your patience of hearing my poems. And this one is entitled Nothing is Missing. And I liked it. I liked it for today because I know sometimes in these times I feel like I'm missing out. I'm missing things, you know, and so nothing is missing. Here we go. It's very short. All right. Nothing is missing from this moment. There is no lack in you. You are already whole and joyous. You are already one with the universe. You are the light as it skims across the surface of the pond. You are the bird that sails through the clouds. You are surfing on the surface of God's love all the time. You are the deepest, widest, fullest, most passionate expression of divinity. There is nowhere to go and nothing to do. Forget yourself and remember everything. Fling yourself from the pinnacle of fear into the abyss of joy. Sing, dance, and love, for you are the expression of all these things. Find that which was never lost. Hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you for you. You are the blessing, my friend. Mm. Thank you so much. We spent a long time here. Thank you for giving us of your, your time, your wisdom, your heart. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. And we will see you on the next episode of Share Humanity. Thank you, dear Jonathan, for all you give the world. May we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Mm. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.